Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. If you're new to the things of the faith, Zechariah is just before the Old Testament. Yes, Zechariah, Malachi, then Matthew. I'm going to read the first several verses. Our goal this evening is to get through uh, this chapter and then conclude this series in the book. Let's together read the first seven verses. Not together, but you know. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. As he fights in the day of battle, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives should be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Let's be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray that. You give us ears to hear through this prophet, through his oracle. This is first given in a distant land, but I pray that it will make a difference in our lives even this evening. So speak to us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in chapter 14 of Zechariah tonight. This sermon will conclude the time we've spent over a number of weeks walking through this book. And if you're just joining us, Zechariah lived a generation or so after Daniel and the Babylonian captivity, which was about 500 years before Christ was born in Bethlehem. This is not the easiest book to interpret, but it's very, very rich. Like all of Scripture, it's a gift to the church. God grants a series of pictures, visions, messages through his prophet. There's rebuke, there's repentance, there's judgment, there's, re- there's encouragement, there's promises given. Zechariah's day was a time of uncertainty, there was slow progress, it was a time of waiting. If you take anything away from this series, I hope you see that Jesus Christ is the beginning and end of this book. He's the goal, he's the message. It's true of any book of the Bible, right? Perhaps, though, what's unique about this book is its variety. 
And what I mean by that is there's a, there's a wide-ranging array of pictures of Christ that are given to us. Chapter 1, Jesus is a leader, the Lord's angel army, who watches out over God's people. Chapter 2, Jesus is a great architect. He has a measuring line in his hand, and he's the one who will rebuild Jerusalem. Chapter 3, Jesus is a great judge. And he's a unique judge because he can also cleanse the guilty who are in the courtroom. In chapter 4, Jesus is a great lampstand. And his burning wick does not burn out because the oil is perpetual. It keeps on running into the lamp. He does not run dry. In chapter 5, Jesus is the remover of wickedness. Evil is taken from among God's people and it's sent to the land of Shinar. In chapter 6, Jesus is God's servant, the branch. Branch is a vine of sorts. Jesus is a new work. New fruit comes forth from this branch. There, Jesus is also presented as a high priest. And he's not just a high priest. This high priest sits on a king's throne. So Jesus is both priest and king in one person. In chapter 8, Jesus is the reason the Israelites' fasting turns into feasting. In chapter 9, he comes into Jerusalem, sitting on a donkey's colt. And he's presented there, in that chapter, as the king of all kings. He's even greater than Alexander the Great. In chapter 10, Jesus, the good shepherd, conf confronts the false shepherds. In chapter 11, Jesus, the good shepherd, is rejected by men for 30 pieces of silver. In chapter 12, Jesus is the one who was pierced for our transgressions. And to be pierced, that was the punishment for idolatry. And once he was pierced, according to this picture, a fountain was opened in Israel. A fountain is another image of Jesus. In the Gospels, Jesus says, come to me and drink, all of you. For if you drink of this water, you will never be thirsty again. In chapter 13, Jesus is pictured as a shepherd again, but this time he is called the companion of the Father. And the shepherd is struck by the sword of the Father. And the Gospels, too, pick up on this imagery and quote it in the New Testament. Image after image after image. Today we're in 14, and we'll see yet another picture of our Savior here. That's quite a list, isn't it? If you doubt the Bible, it's true. Read this book itself, off of the game. It's true, just looking at it. So let's dive in here. And as we do, let me offer a bit of forewarning here. Scholars have a variety of views about the context of chapter 14. So here in this early part, it's going to require a little bit of work for us. So let's, let's labor really hard here in the beginning to, to really get the picture correct as we move ahead. And as we move ahead through the passage, we'll conclude by reflecting on three or four ways this last chapter can make a difference for us today. So let's start actually by looking at the end of chapter 13. This is where we left off last time. Look at chapter 13 just before, verses 8 and 9. It says this. It shall come to pass 
in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. So after all of these pictures of salvation, there's a refining for the people of God there at the end of chapter 13. Some will say that this refers to a remnant who survive after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Others will disagree with that, but one way or the other, there is a time of testing for God's people. And that leads us into chapter 14. Look now at chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. The remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So Jerusalem is attacked. Goods are divided, the city is taken, the houses are plundered and ruined, the women are ravished. Perhaps, though, this is surprising. There are places in Zechariah in which God protects Jerusalem from attack. In one place, it's apparent that God protects his people from the threat of the Greeks. In another place, we read that God would protect Jerusalem even by being a wall of fire all around her. So God is going to protect his people by being a wall. He's, he's not providing a wall. He himself is the wall. So what is going on? Why isn't he protecting them this time? Why is the city attacked? Why do the people suffer as a result? In short, Jerusalem in this instant is referring primarily to the new Jerusalem, that is, the church. This is the classic reformed view on this passage, but we've got to get this right. It's on this point where there's a lot of disagreement. But moving forward, we understand this reference to Jerusalem as the new Jerusalem. I think we'll get the rest of this chapter right. Let me labor a bit more. There are a number of reasons I think this is referring to the new Jerusalem. One is because elsewhere in Zechariah, the word Jerusalem often refers to something grander than the physical, historical city of Jerusalem. It's the view of Reformed scholar Richard Phillips. If we look back through the book, we can see a few instances. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. So Jerusalem is just going to grow and grow and grow and grow. Seems to be speaking of a different sort of Jerusalem. In chapter 8, God says he will return to Zion and he will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And it will be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. He also goes on to say that in this new Jerusalem, he will gather his people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. So all of these varieties of people will be in this new Jerusalem. It's one reason I think this is referring to the church. So this is about us, chapter 14, right off the bat. I think this is about the church age. Another reason I think this is so is because the rest of the chapter is apocalyptic in nature. The Mount of Olives is split in two. Light will diminish. It will not be day or night. 
That's strange language. And that lends itself to apocalyptic literature. And in apocalyptic literature, like in Revelation, we have many cases in which Jerusalem is the New Testament church. It's made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Another reason, I think this is about us, about the church. Notice there at the beginning of the chapter, all nations are attacking Israel. This did not happen at any point in Israel's history. It did not happen in the first century. And this is the sort of language Revelation uses to describe the attacks on the New Jerusalem or the church. Besides that, it's unlikely that all nations are going to agree on anything. It's unlikely they would be of one mind on anything. They do agree, however, on their hatred for God. They do agree on their rejection of God and of his church. There are times, of course, in which God does protect the physical, historical city of Jerusalem. And the argument I made during some of these sermons was that when God did so, in large part, he did so because Christ had not yet come. The temple system in Jewish life would need to be ready for Jesus so that he may fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to be presented, for instance. He had to be presented in the temple. He had to ride into town on a donkey's colt. So God's people, the church, are attacked in verses 1 and 2. Look at the details there. It's horrific. Perhaps unimaginable. But it's here, it's in the text. If you think about it, though, this verse has already come true for many Christians. It's happening today in some parts of the world. You can think of the saints in Nigeria who are persecuted for their faith. Some have their property confiscated. That's spoiled. That's goods. That's plundered. Some are abused. Women ravished. Some are even killed. This happens in China, India, elsewhere. In fact, we could say in all times since the apostles, up through the Roman Empire, the Middle Ages, until now, God's people, though sometimes they experience prosperity, they often experience persecution. Pastor Ryan pointed out this morning in the book of Daniel that there is a perpetual war against God's church. And we should expect there to be times of testing. And we should expect there to be times of persecution. For all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this will be the case until the last day. So verses 1 and 2, it might be grim at first, but then we have verse 3. Verse 3 says, the Lord is coming, and it's the Lord himself who fights against the nations who attack this new Jerusalem. The Lord himself descends, and it says that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And then we have a bunch of apocalyptic language here. As he descends, the Mount of Olives is split in two from east to west. It upends the natural order of things. The land is changed. Notice a valley is created. And even light itself is changed. And this is reminiscent of Isaiah when it says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, 
nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. So at the presence of the Lord, the natural order of things is upended, even light itself is upended, and the presence of the Lord is light itself. It's apocalyptic language. Let's look at verses 8 through 11 together. Let me read these verses. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord's one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Sheba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited and replaced from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Haniah to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So God crushes the enemies of the church and then in that day there are living waters flowing from Jerusalem. And it flows east, and it flows west, and it flows year-round, in summer and winter. And the Lord is king. The Lord is one. His name is one. And of course, this is reminiscent of what we see elsewhere when God is gathered with his people on the last day. And think back to Eden. When Eden is created, this is paradise. What was flowing through it? There's a river. And the waters go out from Eden into the earth. And consider Revelation 22. Flip there with me, if you will. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. Similar sort of image. From the day when the Lord comes, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. But what happens? The natural order of things is upended, and there's a river of life. He shows John a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the land. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding fruit every month. That is, summer and winter, this matches up with Zechariah. And every month it's fruitful. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Notice 2, verses 10, 11, and 12. Jerusalem is exalted. These other places are flattened. Verse 10, we see that Jerusalem is raised up. And if this is not a physical Jerusalem, but a spiritual Jerusalem, what is this saying? The church, God's people, are raised up. They are prominent. And the rest are laid flat. The people shall dwell in it. There's no longer destruction. Jerusalem is safe. Looking now at verses 12 
to 15, there's a plague now coming upon those who reject the Lord. This plague dissolves the flesh of those who stand on their feet. Their eyes dissolve in their sockets. The tongues dissolve in their mouths. Verse 13 says, It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel, in great abundance. So there's a reversal of the plundering. God's people were plundered in verses 1 and 2. Now there's a reversal. Now God's people are plundering the nations. And this plague extends not just to the people, but even to the animals, the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, the plague come upon them all. Verses 16 through 21, we now see that all of these nations, even those who receive the plagues, they are brought into submission to the king of kings. Let's read this, verses 16 and the following. Spend some time here before closing. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So those who are not plagued, those who submit to God, they go up year to year to the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 17. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not keep up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So those who come up get to feast. Those who do not are plagued. They have no rain. They have no produce. They have no way of life. And notice that Egypt is singled out. I think the only reason that's singled out is because Egypt doesn't really need rain. It has the Nile River, and it's because of the Nile that they're able to irrigate their land. So even if there's no rain for a time, Egypt is still able to thrive. So there's a little bit of, even Egypt, Egypt, you're not going to get away with it. We're going to send a drought, but even you, you will be plagued. This, of course, can harken back to the Exodus and all of the plagues that came upon the Egyptians. Verse 20. This is the New Jerusalem. This is the culmination of the book. This is the vision that Zechariah puts before the people. This is the goal. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's houses shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook them. And that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Okay. Everything is holy in this new place. Leviticus, this, these, these 
sacrifices that were required to cleanse the Levitical priests, and not just them, but even the instruments they used in the temple system. These are special, special things. And they're cleansed, and they're holy to the Lord. But this new reality, that is, the new church, the new Jerusalem, Christ's people, everything will be holy. Every instrument will be holy. So the horses, but even the pots, everyone and everything will be holy. So think about heaven for a moment. What in heaven will not be holy? There's nothing. It will all be made holy. This new reality is utterly different. It's otherworldly. And then look there, the last verse, a curious thing. There shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. A couple of ways to take this, essentially one way. Canaanite is a foreigner. There is not going to be a foreigner in the house of the Lord. We know that the Lord is going to save a remnant from every people group. So what does he mean there's not going to be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts? They have to become an Israelite tomorrow. They have to become a Christian. Beyond that, however, Calvin and many other scholars agree that Canaanite can also be taken to mean merchant. There will not be a merchant in the house of the Lord of hosts. Why would there be a merchant in the house of the Lord of hosts anyway? Why would you come into the temple to do business? Why would you come into the temple for your own glory? Why would you come into the temple to try to improve your own life? You're there to worship the Lord. Who's there in the temple for their own interests? No one but a sinner comes into the house of the Lord to do business. So in that day, the great day, there will not be a merchant in the house of the Lord of hosts. This is a picture of heaven. In heaven, there's not going to be squabbles among the church. Everything will be peaceful and perfect. But it's also a picture of our reality now. Remember Jesus, the week before he was crucified, when he comes into the temple and he overturns the money changers' table. What were they doing? They were doing business, of course. They were merchants in the house of the Lord. And Jesus comes in and he cleanses them. He cleanses the temple. He makes a whip of cords and he, he exercises them out of there. And he says, this is supposed to be a place of worship, a place of worship for all nations. And yet you have upended it. And Jesus comes in to clean the house of the Lord. Let's think now about ways we can think about this chapter. That's a quick overview, if you will. Several takeaway points. I have four listed. The first and most obvious is this. After all the pictures of Christ that we've seen, what more is there to say to you or to anyone else but to cling to Christ as Lord and Savior and God? 
cleanses the house of the Lord. He's worthy of your worship. And he commands you to come. Second point. Second takeaway point. Not just from this last chapter, but from the book as a whole. I would say marvel upon the excellencies of Christ. And here I'm really looking at a sermon that Pastor Ryan preached a few weeks ago. You may recall it from 2 Peter 1. Pastor Ryan there spoke about how our knowledge of Christ bears much fruit in our Christian walk. And he spoke from 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 1, verses 2 to 4. Those verses say this. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Then Pastor Ryan went on and expounded that. And part of his point is that as we see the excellencies of Jesus, we are changed. So believer, I speak to you this evening. Do you want to be more holy? Do you want to be changed for the better? The Bible's command to you is to marvel at Christ. We don't want to remain babes in the faith. Let us look then upon Christ and not just in the gospel accounts. We can go to even obscure parts of scripture like this book of Zechariah. So may the Spirit of the Lord help us to mine these treasures of Scripture. Because when we see Him, we will be made like Him. Another takeaway point is this, and I made this one before. Bear with me. Make disciples of chapter 14 in mind. All nations come into the Feast of Tabernacles. By the way, why the Feast of Tabernacles? I didn't mention that part, but why the Feast of Tabernacles as opposed to another feast? I think there's a few reasons. Let me, let me just mention a few. One, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrates really the Exodus. So these people coming out of a foreign power, they're, they're now in the house of God. They're in the people of God. And that's what happens in chapter 14. These people are rescued from these foreign ideologies, foreign gods, and they're brought into the house of the Lord. Also, Feast of Tabernacles is the Feast of Ingathering. It happens in autumn, and it's a harvest. And if you will, in this picture, in chapter 14, you have a harvest, but a harvest of people groups. It's a tribe, and a tongue, and a nation from everywhere. It's God's harvest. So, make disciples with that in mind. God dwells among his people. The people worship God. They're made holy. We see all of these things in the book of Revelation. And we see this, these end time sort of pictures. We see these common threads. And the other common thread is that there is a remnant from every people. And what significance does this have? Well, God overcomes all the gods and false ideologies in every corner of the globe. No one, no ideology can stop him. No one can thwart him. All are foolish compared to him. And there is no people who are too far off from the graces of God. And therefore, everyone is welcome at the table, every tribe and tongue and nation. 
So we must obey the great commission of our Lord. It is his vision, and we must work as his hands, his feet, and mouth, so that he may be worshipped by all. So make disciples with that in mind. When you think about making disciples, when you think about doing the work of the church, that must be part of it. Lastly, one more takeaway point is this. Do not despise the day of small things. Earlier in the book, chapter 4, verse 10, God tells his people to not despise the day of small things. And the verse is a good way to recall much of Zechariah's message to the Israelites in his day. There, in his day, people saw little reason to hope. Some of them saw little reason to be excited. Think about what they had been through and their fathers had been through. They had experienced an exile, a captivity in Babylon. They had experienced a return from exile. They experienced a great loss of possessions, including their temple. They lost influence, prestige. Even more, there were threats all around. There were other uncertainties. There was the rise of new foreign enemies. And then there was their sin and shame. They had come face to face with their guilt. They had been humbled. And this book begins with national repentance and a dedication to God. And there's prophecy after prophecy given into them for their encouragement in the faith. Well, think about this for a moment. This, this book spans a period of decades, and there are 500 years yet until Christ comes. So in one way or the other, you could say that in their day, life was slow. Progress was slow. They didn't see much difference day to day. The city was being rebuilt, but it was slow. They're waiting on God throughout all the decades Waiting and waiting. They're longing. And they were sinning when they were despising their day. Some of them were longing for excitement, longing perhaps to be part of something that's bigger. They were missing out on the job God had given them. They were missing out on what was right in front of them. God had given them jobs to do. But they were despising it, and they were calling it a day of small things. Is that you, believer? I think many of us are tempted in this way. We can see our role, we can see our plot in life as insignificant in the grand scheme of things. If so, God's word to you is the same that he gave to this people. Do not despise the day of small things. Christ is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And these visions set forth in this book, they're for you. They are your work. Therefore, do not despise the day of small things. Be glad. Be thankful. For God has given us a glorious task. This last bit of advice may strike some of you as to be a bit obscure, perhaps not for all of you. I think there are seasons where we all kind of ebb and flow. If so, 
Do not despise your lot in life. The Lord has put us, he's put us in places um, for his good reason. Let's pray to him now. Our Father, we're grateful for this book and this word through your prophet. May it, though it be distant, have its salty effect in us. And Lord, may we, as we look upon Christ, be changed by him as we consider his excellencies. And I pray, Lord, that we will not despise the day of small things, but let us work with eagerness, for you are indeed building your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name.